We are in Luke chapter 12, the parable of the rich fool. Ooh, it's a good one. Starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get all that you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. You may be seated. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, friends, in a second here, we're going to uh, look into this parable to see what it has to teach us. I've been really enjoying this sermon series we have been looking at the parables, with the possible exception of today's sermon, of course. I've been deeply edified by them, challenged by them. It's been amazing. Before we do that, I just want to give you the briefest of comments, really a thank you and a celebration of what God has done in how you as a church have risen up. Last week, Mark talked about what was going on in Afghanistan and, uh, and the ones there, the suffering there. And I just want to say, church, you have been amazing. The prayer room that was open between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. was filled with prayers for those folks. There's folks who have decided to stay behind in Afghanistan. There's some who have decided to leave. We're helping them get settled. A small fraction will end up here in San Diego. We are coming alongside them, befriending them. How can we... How can we serve you? And most of them will be uh, emigrating to other places. Um, And also, uh, we, Mark, um, you know, suggested we took up an offering, a special offering. Without any fanfare, I want to celebrate what God has done for a second. It's in the context of the horror and the heartache, right? And in it, God has done an amazing thing. Um, You guys generously gave over $425,000. So I want to say, praise God for that. Um, Yeah, praise God. It's amazing, and it's going to very good purpose. You can come and chat with us out in the courtyard if you want to know more. Um, But friends, um, it's a little overwhelming hearing the stories and knowing what is going on. And it's uh, in that we're seeking the Lord. We're seeking what our small obedience looks like. Okay, so I need a... Change gears here for a second. Um, As Crystal read out, today we're going to be looking at the parable of the rich fool. One theologian uh, called this the parable of the mismanaged miracle. Because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, right? This guy forgot that. Um, I'm not going to lie, it's going to be hard to listen to. I decided to call this sermon, in the end, um, Money Can't Buy Me Love, because you know the song, I don't care too much for money, or the movie, if you're a Gen X, or if you've never heard of it, you're probably a millennial, Um, but the, right, Money Can't Buy Me Love, 
I actually thought of calling this sermon Mean People Suck, you know, like the t-shirt. But then I thought no one would ever, no one should ever say that from stage. So I'm not going to do that, right? But you'll notice this parable is bookended. Most parables have one key meaning. And here it's, it's, it operates as a bookend. Watch out for greed. Be rich towards God. Did you notice that? It's, of course, we know, it's flip sides of exactly the same coin, right? Watch out for greed. Be rich towards God. So we're going to be, um, begin today. We're going to talk a little about the context of the passage. And then we're going to look at the text, what it actually says. And briefly then, we're going to look at the whole text. What does the whole Bible have to say about wealth and possessions and money? And if you're thinking, ah, oh, crumbs, I haven't come to church forever and I come and they're talking about money... <laughs> I'd like to apologize. I mean, I'd like to, but I'm not going to. Because Jesus has rather a lot to say about it. 37 times in the biographies written about him, we call them the Gospels. He talks about wealth and possessions and money. Over 2,000 references in the Bible about it. It's in there. We needn't skirt around it. But I want you also to be at rest. This church and our heart is in no way to be uh, manipulative or to try and get you to do something otherwise you wouldn't do we're, we're adults adult to adult relationships here that's what we're about this is what the word of the lord says you decide what you're going to do about it so let's get into it and see what god has in fact let's pray before we do that god we thank you for your word we thank you that you have not stopped speaking i know there's times when i stop listening but Father, I ask that we would be those who have um, moldable hearts, malleable hearts, Lord. We know that um, hard words make for soft hearts and soft words make for hard hearts. I don't want to have a hard heart, Lord. I don't want to just wallow around in my own foolishness. I want to follow you and know you more and more. So, Father, be with us today. Diminish my voice. Amplify your voice as we come to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was talking to my mum this last week, <clears throat> and um, I said, you know, I've got to preach on, on Luke 12, the rich fool. I said, Mum, this guy really reminds me of your dad, my opa, and my maternal grandfather. And though he softened at the end of his life, and praise God for that, for most of his life, he was a very, very hard man. He took over the farm when he was 15 years old, when his father, my great-grandfather, was rolled on by a horse. He ran the farm until he was 87 years old. He worked that day. He died that night. Apart from when he was in Papua New Guinea in the Second World War, I mean, he'd grown up in the Depression. He was hard, hard guy estranged his sons everyone in the district knew that he would squeeze a nickel out of a dime or is it the other way around I, I can never work out the five and ten cent pieces here don't make sense to me but you know what I'm saying like oh gosh he was a hard hard guy he went through literally hundreds of workers I saw the list some people would only last like two or three days they just could not work for him because he was such a hard guy very very successful Farmer, I was probably the only one who really, over an extended time, could work with him. Every school holiday, I was a boarder. Every school holidays, I'll be working with him. Every university holidays, I'll be down there working. I took a year off between school. I thought I was going to become a farmer. But this story is about him 
As much as it's about him, it's also about me. You notice it begins saying, Someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So a little bit of context. Jesus is, I'm going to call it, at the um, beginning of the end of his ministry. He's been mainly up ministering in Galilee in the north, and he's now coming down towards Jerusalem. This is on the way down towards Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that he's going to have a mock trial. He's going to be crucified on a cross where those doing it at the time didn't understand, but where he took your sin and he took my sin and he took our shame of the things we have done and the things that have been done to us and he finished with it forever. He knows this is coming. But there's all this sort of word out and about. There's this crazy teacher. He teaches with authority. He's not like the normal teachers. This guy is amazing. And... It almost reached a fever pitch and the crowd was growing and growing. Just before this, it almost reached a zenith of the large size of the crowd. The crowd size didn't change. But from this point onwards, as Jesus' teaching becomes harder and harder, and as he goes down and all that I've just said takes place, there's still a big crowd, but they have turned on him. And they're around a cross on a lonely hilltop and they're shouting at him, crucify him. Who do you think you are? This is kind of the high watermark of the crowd. And from this point on, in the biography written by Dr. Luke about Jesus, his teachings become harder and harder. They're they're really full on. He pulls no punches. And this is no exception. I would actually say that this parable is not hard to understand. It's hard to apply. Oh my goodness, yes it is. Mark and Ryan have been talking about the parables and this whole series... And it's great when we... So there's, a, there's a, uh, you know, a kid's Sunday school saying that the parables are an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I want to say that's almost but not quite right. Because the parables are actually an earthly story with an earthly meaning that has eternal consequences. And sometimes, and Brian especially talked, and rightly so, about this, uh, that the parables, it seems like they make things a little more mysterious sometimes. Sometimes they make things clearer. But actually, here's what it is, that the parables actually read us because it's indicative of the heart of the hearer. Are they open to hearing what God says? If not, they'll think, oh, that's mysterious. I don't even understand. It's probably a load of, I mean, what is he even talking about lows and, you know, know, coins and all this stuff. But if our hearts are open, it makes the word of God come to life. But it's hard to hear. It's like difficult listening. My cousin was on a radio once. It was like a student radio thing, middle of the night. And his was a graveyard shift. And they did this thing called difficult listening where they'd bang, you know, hammers and stuff. Can you believe it's on radio, student radio? But that, it might be a little bit like that. This guy here is like, tell my brother to do this. And, and the reason he was saying this is in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 21, it talks about this thing called primogeniture where the oldest son would get a double portion of the father's inheritance. Sorry, ladies, uh, you don't get anything. And sorry, second sons out there, I'm a first son, so I'm getting a big fat portion. If you're the third son, gosh, there's probably not going to be anything left for you. Um, But maybe that was the immediate context. But this guy here asks this thing, and it's like a whiplash if you read what came before, because it's not what Jesus was talking about. This guy's like he's sitting there waiting for Jesus to draw breath so he can jump in and ask a question that was motivated by him trying to get what he wants. 
trying to get the teacher, the rabbi, to, you know, undergird what he was saying in his argument against his brother. Now, Jesus wasn't an ordained rabbi. I think his ordination came actually from a much higher place. But here he has seen us at, and the rabbis in that day and age, they would certainly on matters of religious law, but spiritual law, moral law, civil law, they were the determinants of that. Don't you find Jesus' answer to him really interesting? Man, who appointed me to be a judge or an arbiter between you? I don't think this is a denial of Jesus' authority. I think this is Jesus saying, I'm the one who determines if I'm the judge or the arbiter, and this is not actually important enough. He is the ultimate authority. Mark last week talked in Matthew 25, we are all going to have to stand before Jesus and give an account. All of us. In Philippians 2, before the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He surely is the judge. There is no judge higher than him. But just as the Supreme Court in our land can refuse to hear an appeal, Jesus here says, no, 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 I'm not going to appoint myself judge and arbiter between you. You need to figure that out. And Jesus, as he always does, excuse me, but in my life, puts his hand way beyond what I'm saying the issue is, right onto what the real issue is. And what is the real issue? Well, thank you for asking. (laughs) He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. In first century Palestine, in a largely agrarian context, Jesus says this. Gosh, could it be that in the year AD 2021 in Southern California, this message may have at least as much, if not more, traction or should do in our spiritual lives? Because we're in a land of abundance. We're in a land where we just want a little more. Can I have the photo up on the screen about the um, donkey? I think it's a donkey. Okay, you know, you, you know the old image, right? If I just had that thing, just had that vocation, look at it, it's oh, so orange and wonderful. If I just had that spouse, or just had that, that house, or that car, if I just, I just had, you know, that's us. <laughs> we're, we're the donkey, do you get it, right? Yeah, you, you know what I'm talking about. You know, um, I saw a t-shirt once that says, uh, even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. <laughs> that'd, that'd be a good thing to have on a t-shirt, wouldn't it? In fact, here's the thing. There's some people walking around with t-shirts afterwards with a few of the things out of today. Mean people suck. Sorry if that's offensive. You know, money can't buy me love. Even the rat, you know, even if you win the, the rat race, you're still a rat. And I want to say that here, this... Um, This is hard to hear. This is hard for my heart to hear. You guys are wonderful and you're not greedy at all. It's, you know, the word greed there could be um, translated and is often translated covetousness, where you covet something else, right? And we think, oh, it's envy. Like this guy's sneakers are really cool. I like those sneakers. I'm looking at them. I want those sneakers for me, okay? So I might rugby tackle him afterwards and grab the sneakers, right? (laughs) It's that, but it's bigger than that. It's essentially... Uh, thinking that that which you do not have would fulfill you, whether someone else has it or not. 
But the honest truth is, when you get it, that car, I just want that. If I just had that car, I'd be happy, and I'm working, and I'm thinking, and I'm praying, and everything about me is with that car, and you get the car. And then a few months later, it's got a scratch. One of the kids gets a banana and squashes it into the air conditioning unit, and that's, my, that's in my family. And, and, uh, and then you think, well, that didn't do it, but I tell you what, if I had the latest model of that car, then that'd do it. It's like more. You're never, you're never going to get there. My wife and I, years ago, we took a year off university and, and went and lived and worked in the UK. And we worked there. I was driving trucks um, for these guys with horses in them. But we, these were some of the wealthiest people on planet Earth, multi-billionaires. My heart breaks when I think about them, desperately unhappy. This is a hard truth, friends, but, but honestly, in all of my experience worldwide and even pastorally I think that generally money and happiness are inversely proportional but why do we keep believing the lie watch out watch out for the abundance of possessions be alert remember this is the one meaning it's bookended by the other end we're going to get to be rich towards God and then he tells them the parable he says the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Can I have the picture up of the grain? Oh, look, we've already got one, but either that one or... So, like I said, you know, my family came from farming stock that was cattle and sheep. My wife's family are from the wheat belt, where literally as far as you can see, there's grain waving in the breeze. Her uncles would take off 30,000, 40,000 acres of grain a year. Huge operations, huge risks, huge rewards. If you've got a double spike, like a bump a year plus price high about every seven or eight years, huge reward. But here, this guy, his ground produces the harvest. Did you notice that? What I want to point out is this. We think it's about us. Actually, it's less about you than you think it is. It's less about me than I think it is. You may have done very well. You may have amassed a lot of grain or a lot of wealth, a lot of money, whatever you want to call it. That was a fungible item. So grain in that day and age was something that was easily saleable, right? I don't know if it's the Bitcoin of the first century, whatever you want to call it. But, but like it was something like that. I have amassed all this stuff, but it's not from me. Who gave you the self-discipline to be a hard worker? Who gave you the gifts and talents? Who gave you the opportunities? Who gave you the education? Who gave you that capacity? You know who it was. Who gave you that opportunity? Who, where did it come from? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This guy, his chief problem was actually, he thought it was him. Certainly what comes next, I'll call it the, um, the curse of the pronouns. Did you notice as Crystal was reading? He says, I, me, my, me, my, I, again and again and again. Like, oh, what am I going to do with this money that I've created from the wonderfulness of who I am and aren't I amazing? And You get it? Would we ever do that? Friends, would, would we ever do that? And he reaches this inflection point. Verse 17, what shall I do? What shall I do? And don't we all reach that inflection point? I think again and again. I want to share to a couple of different demographics who are here in our church. Those who are retired, or so said, those who are in that kind of, you know, fat middle bit of the hump, the kind of, you know, middle of our career type folks, and those who are just entering. 
And I'm sorry if what I'm about to say offends you. But I think on uh, good warrant with the word of God, I believe it to be true. For those who are in that time, you've worked hard all your life and you're now in that place of retiring. I want to say this and hear the next few sentences that I'm about to say really well and with your hearts. Retirement is for sissies. (laughs) Retirement is for sissies. We get reassigned. I sat out or stood out in this car park a couple of months ago with a buddy of mine, Jim Peavy. His construction company built the, uh, the building over there with the youth and the cafe and that. And, um, and he said, look, I'm, I'm resigning from the thing, you know, from his role in the construction company. And he said, Nick, pray with me. I'm just waiting with bated breath for my next assignment. What is God going to take me on to next? And I'm like, hallelujah. John Piper said, don't waste the rest of your life. Really? You've worked so hard. You've built up all this wisdom and this acumen and this experience where you can be a mentor and a supporter and an encourager and you're going to spend it whacking golf balls? <laughs> like, really? That's a good use of your time? And I, Golf is great. Surfing is great. If you're doing it for worship or fellowship or witnessing. Like, it's an act of that which rejuvenates you. That's great. Or if you're doing it to hang out with mates and encourage one another. If you're taking your non-Christian mates out, let's whack some golf balls and all the way you're loving them. And so I'm not against golf. Hear me, hear me well. Retirement is for sissies. Don't think that you have retired. You have not retired, friends. We need your wisdom. We need your skill and your, your mentorship. We, we need you. The church needs you. The kingdom needs you. Friends, don't just tap out. And wait for a few years or decades until you die. David Engelman and Sherry are here somewhere. They were outside. They are amongst the most unretired people that I know, and I say that as highest compliment. Don't retire. Oh, my gosh, what were you thinking? My granddad literally worked 85. That day he worked, then he died. My dad, up until a month before he died... He couldn't even read. He realized, he said, Nick, I, I realized that it wasn't good for me to be in that context because I couldn't even read the, the legal brief before me. So he, he was reassigned and he spent his last month just encouraging people from his deathbed. Don't think that you retire. So that's, okay. What about the, the ones who are in that phase of life that I'm in where we're just, oh my gosh, like we're sucking down coffee and we're like shoving oatmeal in and we're booting the kids out the door and like life goes by and you've woken, you've slept and sometimes you're in the middle. Like, okay, I want to speak to us for a second because this is something that I see and I see it amongst my friends here where we somehow, often in whispered tones, think that the person who's made it, and it's mainly the men, let's face it, men, we're a bit stupider than our women, okay? We think... That guy's made it because he, you know, had some clever investments and, you know, retired from the Bay Area and and has done this thing. And and now he just hangs out and really he surfs. I mean, that's what that guy does. And we hold that out as the kind of doyen of success. You know how many people that I know in that place who are desperately unhappy? Don't, Don't hold that up as the thing. Find joy in the work of your hands. Be purposeful and thoughtful about what you're doing. But don't think that's, that is not success, friends. And likewise, those of us who, who are entering into that phase of life where we're at university, we're wondering, God, what do you want me to do and all that. I read this article the other day uh, called FIRE, all caps, 
financial independence retire early from people who are in their 30s and, and late 20s who just like through working hard and clever investments, they literally retired early at like 29 and they travel the world going to developing countries where they can get by on five bucks a day and whatever. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is seen as success. My gosh, these are the young people who we need to be coming around, supporting, mentoring, loving on, saying you can change the world. You know the gifts and talents God's given you. There's no one else like you. What, what, let me make space for you. Let me run ahead of you and run interference for you. What do you need? Do you need mentoring? I've got someone. Let me think about that. I've got someone for you. What does it look like for you? The inflection points that we reach, what shall I do? This guy chooses the bad route. He says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Can I have that photo of the barn up on the screen? This is a big barn. This is absolutely nothing what that barn would have looked like. Okay, But I'm just going to build a bigger barn. I've got all this grain and these possessions and... And it seems like a good idea until you remember that actually the barn is never going to be big enough. Because while I fit it all in, oh, but I've got that grain and I've got the boat. What am I going to do with it? Well, I've got the, you know, my motorbike and that's going to, I need to build a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. There's this great kid's book called The Lorax by Dr. Seuss. And in it, there's this guy called the Wansler who's a kind of a, I want to call him an entrepreneur, he comes into this beautiful place, cuts down these trees, and he makes this thing called a thneed, right? Which, it's really a useless thing. Is it a glove? Is it a hat? I don't know. But, but really through clever marketing, he sells the thneeds. Everyone needs a thneed, right, is what he, he says. And then he, he destroys the environment, and he, and he works over all the people who are working for him, and he just does a disastrous thing and, and whatever. But there's this part of it where he says, I've got to get bigger, so bigger I got. I've biggered my factories, I've biggered the roads, I've biggered everything. Here's the point. The point is, you will never be able to bigger things enough. If we're given over to greed and if we're not rich towards God, it will never be big enough. Ever. So let's think about what we're doing. And, and by the way, it wasn't by a kawinky dink that we had the bottom line guys here today in the Lord. I mean, months ago, I was given this passage to speak on this weekend. It was just by happenstance that they were here or God's providence, let me say. Because if you're an entrepreneur out there, don't hear for one second that I'm knocking what you do. I love what you do. God has gifted you with a very special, wonderful, amazing gift to innovate, to think differently. If you're a business person, don't, don't think that me knocking the onceler and all that. No, no, no. But think very soberly and very carefully about two things. What you're doing? Are you making needs? Like, really, useless things? Are you just pushing pixels around a screen? Like, really? Are you doing something of enduring worth? First point. Second point, how are you doing it? Are you exploiting workers? Are you grinding them down so you can be built up? What you're doing and how you're doing it is vitally important. But don't feel that I'm knocking you. We love you. We've got a whole team who is uh, dedicated to helping you be the very best entrepreneur, business person, whatever it is, we love that. We celebrate that. I just want you to know that. Just in case you're wondering, oh, maybe, you know, he's a crazy guy up here knocking. No, I'm not knocking you. He says, and <clears throat> that's where I'll store the surplus grain. And he says, and I'll say to myself, self, 
you have plenty of grain laid up. In the original, because the Bible wasn't written in English, in the original language, it actually says, I'll say to my soul, soul, you've done very well. You've got all this grain. I just want to make what seems like an obvious point here, that if the circle of your counsel includes yourself only, I think you should question the objectivity of that counsel. I know it seems obvious. At the very least, it's going to lack objectivity and it may even be a little bit compromised by the, you know, the things that are going to gratify me. If I'm saying to my soul, soul, if Nick, if I'm saying to myself, hey self, got some advice for you, question it. Put around yourself good mates. There's three guys here in this audience who I'm part of a small group with them. We love each other, care for each other. One of them prayed with me on, on my front um, porch yesterday. <laughs> so not that I forgot the word. It said I was quite touched by the, by the moment. They are good mates who you know when I'm wrong, they'll get two bricks and they'll look at me lovingly and they'll go, dong, and I'll go, <laughs> don't. Don't think that a loop that includes only you is going to give you good advice. Here it was dreadful advice. I've got plenty laid up for many years. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. Because he who dies with the most toys wins, right? He who dies with the most toys still dies. That would look good on a t-shirt, wouldn't it? That's exactly what happens to this guy. God says to him, fool, fool, this very night your life will be taken from you. The word that Jesus uses there for fool is different than the word we in English translated fool that's in Matthew 5. Jesus says, don't call someone that kind of fool. The word there is, is moray, where we get the word moron, Okay. Don't call someone a moron. They're just a moron. They're just stupid. They're a blockhead. They're an idiot. Don't be mean. That poor person. So don't be mean to me, okay? Friends, be nice to me, okay? <laughs> They're just a moron. Fool here, it's a different word. Here it, it's got connotations of that there's some moral compromise going on in their life. At the very least, there's a lack of perspective. Seeing the whole picture, all that God has called them to be, they are refusing to look at that. Could it be that we ought to be kinder to morons and a little more direct with fools i wonder what would that look like in safe counsel amongst guys who love us for sure not just anyone you know oh yeah i know i shouldn't really sleep with my girlfriend but you know whoops a daisy i just woke up in bed like dude you're a fool stop it like you're ruining your relationship with her it's not good oh you know yeah, I know I really should pay taxes, but gosh, you know, they're so unjust. And really, it's just, you know, a little cash job here under the table. We ought to talk, that's being a fool. That's not just being a moron. Ought we to be kinder to morons and a little more direct with fools? I think we should. In loving Jesus' community, that's how it looks. God says, your life will be taken from you. And then he doesn't even talk about the white throne of judgment and all that's coming, though that is coming, he says, even on this side, like even on your analysis of what life on this side of the river looks like, it's stupid. 
Because all that stuff you've accumulated, it's just going to go to the kids who are going to waste it anyway, or someone else. They're going to fritter it away. They're just this entitled, you know, they don't, they don't respect all that you've done, all that hard work. and everything. No, they're just going to waste it. Why? It doesn't even make sense on this side, let alone in an eternal sense. Some of you right now are thinking, oh my gosh, this was the day when I came to church. We're talking about money. <laughs> hey, we're pretty soon, we're going to be done. In verse 21, Jesus says, this is how it'll be. And I read that first and I thought, that's not really true. I know lots of people who are rich fools. They're not dead. They didn't die overnight. Well, maybe their barns, they're just building them a bit bigger and bigger, but they will in the end. They, we will all, guys, sorry to be the bringer of bad news, but we're all going to die. If you're on the right side with Jesus, it's good news, right? But we get a choice. You're here today. We get a choice about this. And in the end, Jesus comes down and lands and he says, this is how it'll be. If you store up things for themselves... If you, whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God, Eugene Peterson uh, translates it as, um, as those who fill up their barns with self rather than with God. So the question is, what are we filling up our barns with? With ourselves? Let me honestly share with you, oh my goodness, I've been challenged this week because my barn is full of a lot of awful, dreadful ego, and I can probably squeeze a surfboard in the back and maybe a little bit of room for one of my children. I've got to decide which one. And that's it. (laughs) What do you fill up your barn with? With God or, or with self? So we talked about the context. We looked at the text. Now briefly, very briefly, I want to talk about what the whole Bible says about money. And it actually says a lot about money. So we're just going to skate across the surface. And we're going to use one key uh, passage that that dovetails in with this. It's out of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul is writing to the churches in Corinth. And they had a lot of issues going on in Corinth. Very wealthy, all sorts of crazy stuff. Did I I say Southern California or did I say Corinth? Sorry, I might have mixed that up there for a second. A lot of stuff going on. And in it, he's exhorting them. And he's talking about, you know how important it is to give to the poor. You know how important it is. And I celebrate that you, church, have a wonderful heart for that. Not to give handouts, to give hands up and to do it in a wise and thoughtful and empowering way. Absolutely. Absolutely. But if we are living our lives just for ourselves, oh my gosh, all hope is lost. Here, he's exhorting the church and he, and he goes on, he says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you've decided in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency at all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Quick couple of comments. At the end, God promises that he will give you all you need to fulfill the calling that he has given you. As that calling grows, so will his provision. I mean of time, of talents, of people around you, of finances. 
If God is calling you to something big and scary, that for me is one of the you know, test positive that actually was God calling you to it. If it pushes you to your knees, God, there's no way I can solve human trafficking in San Diego in the next 10 years. There's just no way I can do it. Oh my gosh, now we're, now we're getting exciting. This might very well be God calling you to do that, friends. Test it with counsel, but this has the hallmarks of God on it. He'll provide all that you need for every good work. That's the end of it. We don't have time. The start of it, we don't really have time for either. But as you sow, so you shall reap. You've heard the New Age version of that. They stole that from the Bible. It's a biblical concept. You sow honor, you will reap honor. You sow dishonesty, you will reap dishonesty. You sow kindness, you will reap kindness. You sow gossip, you will reap gossip. Again and again and again throughout the Bible, so many times over, we don't have time to talk about it. It's a biblical concept. Sometimes through churches, we can warp it a little bit to what I'm going to call a half-truth called the prosperity gospel, where there's this teaching that if I am obedient, give God a hundred bucks, he's going to give me a thousand bucks. If I give him a thousand bucks, he's going to give me health and wealth. And it's sometimes called the health and wealth doctrine. It's, it's half wrong, okay? Because it draws a line of causality, uh, and that is not true. If I honor God with my finances, then he might actually, and often does, bless me financially. That is, that is true, but not necessarily so. Sometimes the blessing comes in knowing obedience. Sometimes the joy comes in sacrifice. You know the happiest people I've ever hung around with are those who have radically, sacrificially given. I mean of their time, of their finances. They are the happiest people on planet Earth. Sometimes it can be just knowing that in my small, insignificant obedience, I'm getting to see God move in the world and He is doing amazing things. So, so it's true. You can never outbless God. Take that to the bank. But as you sow, so you shall reap. We don't even have time really to touch on that. I want to talk about in the middle bit for a second. And can I have that photo of my uh, son up on stage? His godparents are in the uh, audience today, Juan and Signe down here. This is, my, this is my middle son, Tino. All right? And I want to share with you about what it looks like to move from inactive through reactive to proactive giving. Because each one must give us they've decided in their heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you ain't giving cheerfully, don't bother. God doesn't need your money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Your little three-legged lamb doesn't make any difference. He doesn't need it. The church doesn't need it. The missions organization doesn't need it. If you're doing it grumpily through gritted teeth, seriously, don't bother. It's making you awful to hang around with. All right? Don't do it. God loves a cheerful giver. What does it look like? To inactive giving is just, you know with our time, with our finances, with everything. We're, you know, we're not doing it at all. Reactive is like, I'm whipped up into a frenzy of giving by, by some smart aleck, and, and so I'll give. Well, that's better than inactive giving, reactive, but it's not as good as proactive giving. Waiting on the Lord, growing in relationship with Him, seeking counsel, working with how He's leading you. Our kids, here's what we do. They get as many dollars per week for allowance as they are old, right? Which was a dreadful mistake. What can I say? Um, it's too much now because they eat too much candy and it's definitely not going to be enough when they're 16. But first-time parents made a mistake. What can I say? Right, so the kids, they get this 
and then they hold hands. And this was, um, uh, you know, shown my wife and I by, by mentors. This is how we do things, and this is how, in turn, our kids do things. They get around and they pray, Lord, this is your money. They don't use the word stewardship, but it's exactly what it is. This is your money. Show us what we can do with this. Amen. They get their money. They get their first dollar. You notice there's four slots in his piggy bank. That's a piggy bank if you can't work it out. Four slots. Puts the first dollar in their tithe. That's for their churchy. Tithe means tenth. Now, I don't believe that under the new covenant, we have to give a tithe of our money, a tenth of our money to the church. I don't believe we have to. I believe we get to. All right? But I'm not in your junk. You guys sort things out how you see best. I'm just sharing what my, my little guy does. Puts, and, and here's the thing. In, um, just after this parable, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. It's not where your heart is, there your treasure will be. We think about it wrong. It's where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And you better believe that he loves this church, man. My kiddos love this church. They don't, my kiddos probably don't even know you and they love you. That's how much they love this church. right? They are praying for it, believing God to do things. And then the next dollar, he puts in a little, the next slot, which is called their love offering. And their kiddos let this accumulate to the point where there's enough and they pull it all together. And, and then through prayer, they wait. They wait on God. Oh, my gosh, I'm amazed at my kids. They sit there and, and it's often like a refugee kids because they've heard about what's going on or it's, you know, helping kids come out of human trafficking or, or whatever it is and to their understanding of that and how awful that is. You know, we think about how to share that with them. But, but and oh my gosh, are they praying for that? Are they thinking about that when they go to sleep at night? That's what they're thinking about because where your treasure is, there your heart is. Then the next dollar goes in there. They call it their savings which is so they can one day buy a car or keep their dad in adult diapers or whatever. And, um, and then, then the, the last one is what they call their spendings. Of course, we're so sophisticated as adults, we call it our discretionary uh, income or what do we call it, disposable income. For them, it's like money for candy, money for presents for their friends or whatever. My point is, is this, that I am challenged, radically challenged, because I'm a selfish so-and-so. I don't find this stuff easy. Any of you guys could preach this sermon, should preach this sermon, not me. But I'm blessed by my kids. Because so often, they're getting their money, which can turn into candy pretty quick. Like, and lots of candy. Oh my gosh, they're little, they know how to wheel and deal it, and they find places where it's too cheap. And they could buy candy with it, but they don't. You know what they do with their money? So often, so much more of it. They put into money for their churchy, or money for mission stuff, transforming the world. I want to invite the band back out here. In a second, we're going to do um, the Lord's Supper together. And it may seem like an odd thing, like a bit of a whiplash to what, you know, we're talking about this stuff, and then we're, and then we're going to do um, communion together. I actually don't think so. I think in the Lord, we are whole beings so our, our bodies, our souls, our spirits, the totality of who we are, the material selves, who we are, all that we have, we think we have it. It's actually God's, but we think we have it. And we are in the world too, and the Lord owns all of that. But I want us to think about God as we end here. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his most precious 
son. You're made in God's image. You are made with an inbuilt capacity. You may need to, like me, to dig down like 15 trophic layers to get to it, where we are made with this heart for radical generosity. I mean, of our time, of our finances, of our gifts, of our talents, of our relationships, of all that we are. On the cross, Jesus gave his life. We are given the Holy Spirit. We are given the blessing of Jesus' community around us. I just realized, I don't have a... Can I have a, um, a cup and some <laughs> some other little thing? Oh, thanks. Oh, thank you, darling. Bless you. And can we have one down here? If you, if you don't have one, just shoot your hand up and they'll bring you out some, um, uh, you know, elements, I guess we call them, which is funny because they're, they're kind of uh, revolting in these little wafers. Sorry about that. <laughs> Welcome to COVID. Hey, um... Okay. Let's get in the mindset of this, and then what we're going to do is after we have taken um, the Lord's communion together, we're going to rise as one, and we're going to lift our voices to the Lord, and we're going to stand united here in this Jesus community of broken people, um, but these people who are looking to the Lord together. That's what we're going to do. I've got a couple down here who I didn't grab on on the way through. Sorry for the confusion, guys. Um, We'll put it down to me for sure. So Jesus was hanging out with his buddies, his tight mates, the ones who knew him best, who'd walked the dusty roads with him, who'd seen him do miracles and also who'd seen him weep, who knew that he was a man. They knew he needed rest, he needed food, he needed all the things that we do. Jesus was hanging with them. And it was a night when one of them had said and decided in his heart that he was going to betray him. Jesus took a loaf of bread in this intimate setting and he tore it apart. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Hey, mates, let's remember Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you gave your life for us. We don't hold it cheap in our best moment in our hearts. We don't hold it cheap that you allowed your body to be broken for us and pierced for us. And here we are, Lord, 2,000 years later, as your body symbolically coming together. And we are an imperfect representation of that. We long to be more like you. Make us more like you, Jesus. Unite us. Give us good purpose. What are we to do, Lord? We, we hunger and yearn for that answer. And Jesus took a cup. Had some wine in it. Probably some sort of clay chalice, if you're wondering. Not like the movie, you know. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. The old covenant was one where all that you would drink is God's wrath. There's no other drink that you're offered. Because we're imperfect, friends. Jesus said, this is the cup of the new covenant. 
This is my blood given, given freely for the forgiveness of many sins. Let's remember Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for the blood, the blood that brings freedom. And it seems odd, I I know it, Lord, I know it seems odd to outsiders, to those who don't understand it. But Father, in it, we see the beauty of the gospel, that you through your blood have made a way for us to come before you and your perfection. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that you have richly blessed us. Let us live radically for you in light of that as we stand now and lift our hearts to you. Dear God, we thank you that though there's no warrant for it, though it doesn't make sense in my pea brain little mind, that your blood has made us whiter than snow. Before you, all sin is gone, all shame is gone, all condemnation is gone. In you, all we have is freedom and life. God, I ask that this week, each of us would be thinking about our barns and what we are filling our barns with. Lord, anyone who um, has hurts associated with this, Lord, just release them from those hurts. Let my words just drift off like chaff and be of no uh, worry to them. No anxiety in you. Let us be unencumbered, Lord Jesus. Let us give freely, sacrificially, joyfully as you did of our time, Lord, of our finances, Lord, of our hearts, of our prayers, of our very lives as you gave us. May all these dear ones this week, Lord, I... I bless him in your name. I ask that these dear ones this week, Lord, will be empowered by your spirit to live radically for you, the one who we love. In Jesus' name, amen. So friends, be blessed this week. May be blessed thinking about your barns, thinking about the inflection points in your lives, thinking about who God is and what that means. I love you, church, and I look forward to seeing you soon.